0: It's the 16th of April, 2021. This is a Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It is the 16th of April. Have you done your taxes? No, you don't have to do taxes this year. You only have to listen to the Room Now podcast. So, you know, these new therapies like the IL-6 inhibitors and the JAK inhibitors are known for elevating lipids. And the question was, Would those lipid elevations, while controlling inflammation, nonetheless lead to an increased rate of cardiovascular events? So far, the data has been very good. You know, there's been that large head-to-head trial uh, with etanercept and tocilizumab that really didn't show any adverse cardiac outcomes. So those lipid elevations don't seem to be all that consequential. I found this study in the cardiac literature this week. It's the ASAL-MI trial. 200 patients, these are cardiac patients, don't get excited, it's not RA or anything else. These are just cardiac patients who've had a STEMI, you know, ST elevation MI, that's brand new within six hours, and they're either randomized to placebo placebo, or tocilizumab. The question being whether can control of of inflammation and uh, abrogation of IL-6 within the heart less than the amount of cardiac damage. And in this study, they, again, gave the patients 280 milligrams of IV tocilizumab. And overall, they found that there was a trend towards improvement in myocardial infarct size in those who were treated with tocilizumab. It was 7.2% versus 9.1%, not quite significant. But otherwise, the tocilizumab patients did have what was called better myocardial salvage and less overall microvascular obstruction. These are things that are important to the cardiologist, suggesting that being on background IL-6 inhibition getting a heart attack may be an okay thing. Now, we're not really seeing more heart attacks on patients on IL-6 inhibitors, but I think this is an interesting study outside of rheumatology that relates to what you do. This week in our clinic, we saw a new patient that had these new hard subcutaneous deposits under the skin that were without explanation and yes they felt like calcinosis sort of discrete gravel like nodule or nodular but they're really more like gravel gravel they're hard they have sharp edges etc a few plaque like um, lesions and we were talking about what this could be associated with what the lab testing might be and my point uh, to the fellow was this is part of the new NXP2 profile. This is a new myositis-specific antibody. It usually is seen in a panel with TIF-1 gamma associated with cancer or MDA5, uh, the patients who have uh, um, amyopathic dermatomyositis and a progressive lung disease and bad skin lesions. Very interesting antibodies. Anyway, anyway NXP2 uh, is also associated with a small cancer risk um, and is seen in kids and adults, but has been associated with probably calcinosis, maybe it's best association. I did look up other, uh, autoantibodies and found that MDA5 has an association with, uh, calcinosis and also the anti-PM-SCL, uh, antibody that's, uh, felt seen in patients with scleroderma with some myositis overlap. Those patients also seem to be at greater risk of calcinosis with that autoantibody profile. Speaking of dermatomyositis, we there you know we have the classic manifestations that um, we certainly well know of. That would be what the Gottron's lesions, the heliotrope rash, the shawl or V-neck uh, telangiectatic violaceous rash, uh, calcinosis, right, uh, periungal erythema. Well, found a nice uh, publication that gives some nice detail. To the non-hallmark manifestations of dermatomyositis, it's a good free read with some pictures that you should look at, and other things that other skin manifestations of dermatomyositis that should make you think dermatomyositis would include paniculitis, diffuse subcutaneous edema, erythroderma, calcinosis we talked about, ulcerative lesions. Those are often seen with MDA five flagellate erythema, you sort of have to see it to understand it, Wong-type dermatomyositis, gingival hyperplasia, and an ovoid patch on the palate has also been associated with dermatomyositis. Interesting things I did not know until I saw this citation. Uh, I think we reported about the use of artificial intelligence heavily at the last ACR. One of the publications dealt with using artificial intelligence Uh, and um, neural networks to develop um, a computer-driven way of diagnosing x-ray sacroiliitis. And it's now in print. So this new publication basically showed uh, in very complex detail how they were able to use um, the computer and develop neural networks that could detect radiographic sacroiliitis at the same level as experts would. Now, the problem is all of us are good at reading um, M, uh, x-rays of the, uh, of the SI joint, but, you know, the SI joints are hard to read, and some of us are not not so good, and radiographic reading of SI joints by radiologists is often a, a crapshoot, so why not turn this over to the computer? Why not let artificial intelligence and neural networks show us that they could actually diagnose radiographic ra- sacroiliitis and improve the diagnostic accuracy, especially when we're in less than ideal situations, clinics outside the country, wherever. Again, it might be a nice way of actually doing entry criteria for clinical trials. Computers are taking over, basically. I found this particular uh, research from the IBD literature really interesting because we often deal with the issue of whether or not we can combine biologic therapies. so Or can we combine expensive therapies? Do you have patients who are taking a JAK inhibitor and a TNF inhibitor? Do you have patients who are taking a primalast and an IL-17 inhibitor or a primalast and, IL and an IL um, and a, a TNF inhibitor? Um, have you ever used an IL-1 inhibitor and TNF inhibitor together? I have. please shouldn't talk about it very much on camera, but you know the, the FDA has always warned us about combining biologics because there were trials back about 15 years ago, combining IL-1 inhibition with TNF inhibition. And while it didn't show much in the way of clinical efficacy, it did increase the risk of serious infectious events, albeit the rate went from like 2% to 6%. Not a gigantic risk, but nonetheless felt to be important by the FDA. Well, this meta-analysis of IBD studies looked at patients with IBD that were treated with combination biologic or combination biologic and expensive therapies. They identified about two, 280 patients who were treated with either a dual biologic or biologic with a JAK inhibitor. The most common of the agents that were used was the combination of a TNF inhibitor inhibitor and anti-integrin therapy. That was about half the cases. That would include vedolizumab, but also there were uh, about 20% of the reports had ustekinumab being combined with vedolizumab, and then a combination of other many other combinations that were seen. Overall these reports, maybe there's a reporting bias here, but there was a positive reports of remission seen in somewhere between 35 and 60% of patients when they were used this. It turns out that such patients in this study tended to have more extra intestinal manifestations of their Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So maybe it is the extra t- intestinal manifestation, maybe even arthritis, that might get you dual biologic therapy. I think this is not off the table. I think this should be further investigated, um, and this kind of report uh, starts the conversation. Can you use a n- one of the new COVID vaccinations in patients who are who are actually um, uh, have rheumatoid arthritis or one of our diseases and taken our therapies? As you know, our patients were excluded from those clinical trials. Patients with autoimmune disease were excluded. There were some patients who were included in those trials with HIV, and we have not seen the readout on that. We have our own biases about what to do with our patients and the vaccine, and all of our patients are getting vaccinated. But there is a report in annals of rheumatic disease that looked at 26 patients with chronic inflammatory disease who received an mRNA vaccination, and they did show that these patients, despite their therapies, had considerable effective immunogenic responses. Now, again, doesn't speak to how effective they were. The number is too low. There are other studies going on that are looking at this. We're going to talk a little bit more about this at the end of this report. There were no unexpected side effects seen in those 26 patients. Uh, so who's at risk for bad outcomes? We've said that in the past that the patients, our patients were at worst risk are those that are on steroids, those that are on rituximab, those that have autoimmune disease, those that have active disease. Most of our patients who are well-controlled are not at higher risk. Well, there's a recent re- report from the UK where they have this sort of um, database of patients with rare auto- autoimmune rheumatic disease, R-A-I-R-D, rare autoimmune rheumatic disease. In fact, they have almost 170,000 patients in this data set. And they looked at those patients because they uh, can now link them up to look, see what happened to them in certain periods, like during the COVID pandemic. Uh, and what their outcomes were. And they basically looked at death rates. And so amongst this 170,000 patients, mean age 62 years, 1.1% of them died in the months of March and April 2020. That death rate turns out to be 44% higher than the average death rate seen in the prior five years for those same autoimmune patients. And in the prior five years, the rates were remarkably consistent. But now, during COVID, is a bump of 44%. Why might that be? Could it be? Rare autoimmune disease and COVID don't mix, and there is a slight increased risk of death. They included patients with lupus scleroderma, I think vasculitis, oddly enough, juvenile arthritis, um, and Bichette's. So it wasn't all inflammatory arthritis, it was basically rare autoimmune disease. I think that was very interesting. Another very interesting report regarding COVID comes from the CDC and MMWR, who reported on a study done by the University of Kansas and NCDC looking at spacing on planes. Everybody's opening up, everybody's running around without a mask and jumping on planes and, you know... uh, and the planes have suspended all their rules about distancing. They're requiring masks. In fact, they'll land the plane and they'll throw you in the pokey if you're not wearing a mask, you know, while you eat your peanuts on the plane. But they don't worry twice about cramming you in next to four people who are coughing with no space in between you. Question is, does that pose a risk? In this analysis where they actually used other viruses, not the COVID virus, they basically showed Using different kinds of seating in different kinds of planes, basically the small bus and the large bus, meaning small planes with um, uh, um, one row uh, as opposed to three or two or three rows across. They looked at what happens when you have an open seat between you and the next seat or not. And basically, that um, uh, distancing on the plane lowered the risk of acquiring uh, or being exposed to infection by 23 to 57%. Now, this study did not look at um, other COVID measures being in place. This study did not look at uh, anything more than exposure. It didn't look at a true infection rates. But clearly, um, having an empty middle seat makes a difference here. Um, I've gone back to traveling a little bit. Um, the CDC says you shouldn't travel for, un- for unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, That you should travel only with a mask. My rules on travel at this point is I travel off peak. I want a half empty plane. Um, I'm going to work hard to get an open seat next to me. I'm going to wear double masks. I'm going to wear goggles and I'm not going to talk or look at anybody. I'm going to stay in my own little world. I may take my mask off to take a swig of something or to chew on a peanut, but it's not going to be, you know running around the plane, talking to people anymore. I still think we have to, even though I'm vaccinated and even though I've been tested, I still think we have to maintain distance and do what we can to protect ourselves and other people. So we have some um, interesting uh, comments that came to us in talk this week. The first comes from Dr. David Mandel, uh, past president of the Ohio Rheumatology Association. David invented the comment, the, the the hashtag, L, uh, hashtag LTF, listen to Fauci. David asks, I've seen about six or seven, six to 10 patients now in the last few months who have been very stable with their arthritis and autoimmune disease. Um, they're not holding back their methotrexate. Most of them were not taking methotrexate. Most were stable on biologics. But he noticed that after they got their COVID vaccine, these six to 10 patients had a definite flare of their underlying arthritis. This was not specific for either the uh, Pfizer or the Moderna was seen with both. He noticed on his exam actual physical changes to substantiate the flare with active synovitis or anthocytis or rises in CRP. Wants to know if I've seen it. What do I think about it? Does it happen? You know, it was not reported as a, a, a common uh, or noteworthy side effect within the clinical trials done, the 100,000 patients with the three vaccines so far. Again, aches and pains, yes. You know, flu-like symptoms, yes. But flares of arthritis, uh, not really. Well, I did a survey of, of eight colleagues. And everyone but one came back and said, yeah, I've had a few patients that have had flares. Flares with either tendonitis, tenosynovitis, enthesitis, um, um, uh, carpal tunnel. Uh, flares of arthritis tend to be smaller oligoarticular monoarticular flares as opposed to polyarticular flares, but that's been seen too. I've seen one oligoarticular flare, one carpal tunnel and one very strange neuritis not responding to steroids or pain medicine, but taking three days to resolve starting the day after vaccination. So yeah, we're seeing this in our patients and I think you need to be prepared to deal with this and counsel your patients steroids, yes, pain medicines, yes, but they're going to get over it. don't do too much. To manage this or overmanage manage this. Um, Dr. Alan Kivitz from Altoona, Pennsylvania, another great rheumatologist asked me a question. Was there any guideline from the ACR regarding um, the use of denosumab in patients who wanted to get vaccinated? Um, and my response back was that I looked at the ACR guideline in detail, and there was no mention about what to do with the denosumab. Um, I personally uh, have looked at a lot of research on denosumab, does it add to infectious risk? It does not. I don't view it in, as a biologic in the same way I view a lot of our other biologics, anti-inflammatory or disease-modifying biologics, and I don't think it's uh, proLEA or denosumab is viewed, can be viewed as an immunosuppressive. So, and, and then when you look at it further, there actually are no studies of vaccination studies being done in patients on denosumab. The ACR guidance doesn't actually address this, doesn't stop me if you're on denosumab you're still going to get your vaccine as soon as possible and without interruption without interruption of the denosumab so i do have one last um uh audio um, tape this is from uh dr mohan in india hello dr push i am dr madan mohan a rheumatologist from india i would like to know situations where you are using tacrolimus in Nephritis. Do you use in combination or for membranous, is it just MMF, your choice? Uh, thank you, Dr. Mohan. You know, um, I have used in the last few years more tacrolimus. I can't say I have dozens of patients on, on tacrolimus. Um, I think it's a highly effective agent in recalcitrant, difficult to manage RA, and the same can be said for uh, patients with l- bad lupus and lupus nephritis. I think my I, I, I have two three patients maybe on this. Um, I monitor blood levels. Uh, I monitor uh, lab tests frequently. I think it's very effective. Yes, such patients who are severe are often on combination therapy. So they may be on another bio lot not a biologic, but maybe on another DMARD. Usually they're all on Plaquenil. The question is would you use it in combination with? Um, mycophenolate? I do not. Would you use it in combination with methotrexate or azathioprine? I have. But again, these are complex patients that you don't undertake this treatment lightly. I think that I would th- nonetheless take a page out of the data that was recently acquired for the treatment of lupus nephritis using two new indications, belimumab and also sporin. another calcineurin inhibitor, sporin probably safer in the long run, probably easier to use, but newer and more expensive. The bottom line is that those drugs work great. Well, they, they met their primary endpoints. They looked really good in the clinical trials. And get in those clinical trials, you had to have biopsy proven, class three, class four, class five, glomerulonephritis. Turns out both belimumab and voclosporin work s- significantly better, meaning statistically significantly better with class three and four, nephritis. Not significant for class five, where there's a wide range of responses, looks like a trend towards some improvement. So no, I would not be using either bulimimab or uh, vocal sporin in patients with membranous disease that's problematic. I probably would not be using, and I have not used it, uh, tacrolimus for membranous. Membranous is a, not all membranous needs to be treated, first off, and then Yes, mycophenolate and other therapies I'll resort to if I have to, but those tend to be few. Hope this helps. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Go to the website, check out these citations and more. Um, Go to the website and click on Backtalk and send in a recording of your case or question. We love to feature it here in future podcasts. Take care of yourselves. Be safe.